Hey guys, Britton Carter here. Uh, before we get into the sermon, we had some uh, technical difficulties uh, this Sunday morning, and so the first probably six minutes of the sermon was cut off. Uh, so we're going to drop you right into the middle of it. Before we can do that, though, uh, I just kind of want to set up what's going on uh, in the sermon this week. So this week we're looking at the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, and what Solomon has been doing up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes is he has been looking for meaning, purpose, and value in everything under the sun, right? Everything in life. He's been looking at our work. He's been looking at our uh, riches, our pleasure, our uh, our free time. He's been looking at all of these things, justice, glory. He's been looking at these things for meaning, purpose, and value, and he just hasn't found it. He, is, he has come up empty in everything uh, in life, and so he's He's still searching, and with, with this emptiness and, and brokenness and hollowness of life, the next thing that he, he thinks about, what he draws his eyes to, is God. He lifts his eyes up and is drawn towards religious thinking, drawn towards the re- his relationship with the divine. And, and this is something that's going to happen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This is re- also, uh, spoiler alert, this is kind of how the book of Ecclesiastes ends, the uh, the emptiness, the brokenness of life causes Solomon to look up to God and recognize that a relationship with him is inherently meaningful and valuable and, and, uh, and good. And so uh, Solomon is never going to question the fact that a relationship with God is valuable and is meaningful and is purposeful. He's never going to question that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But uh, here in the first part of chapter 5, Solomon does have a concern for us. He has a warning that he wants to give us. Uh, he's, he's concerned that we can approach God in a way that is just as empty and meaningless and purposeless as everything else in the world. Uh, we can approach God in a way that is incorrect, and, uh, and that leads to religious observances, religious activities that are just as empty as everything else in the world. And so Solomon's concern for us, here's his, his concern for us, is that we need to be careful how we approach God because God is on an entirely different, different level than us. We need to watch how we approach him, watch how we, how we enter before him, how we, how we uh, approach his presence. We need to watch those things because he's on an entirely different level than us. And there are two main ideas that, um, that lend themselves to this idea. Two truths that Solomon outlines in the first seven verses that lend themselves to this idea. And the first one that we're going to begin looking at when, I, uh, when we you know, drop you into the, <laughs> the sermon here, the first one that we're looking at is the idea um, that God is far above us. He is infinitely superior to us. He is uh, much higher than us. And so these first three verses in the book, uh, 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 in the first First three verses of chapter five of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon uh, outlines this idea that God is is far above us, and he begins with the first verse of chapter five, uh, where where he tells us that we need to be be careful how we approach God. We need to watch our steps when we come before the Lord. And and again, I just want to reiterate the idea that we can approach God incorrectly. That's what Solomon is saying here. We can we can come before the Lord in an incorrect manner, in a way that is empty and hollow, if not harmful. Uh, we can, we can uh, approach God wrongly. And, and, and what, what I'm about to drop you into where the sermon picks up is the idea that, that generally, uh, a lot of times, we think that all God wants from us is to approach him, 
in some way, shape, and form. As long as I put some effort in to approaching God, to, to, to running after him, to following him. So as long as I go to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I say some prayers, as long as I give some money to, to the church or to uh, a, a charity, uh, then God and I are going to be on good terms. And so we, we act like all God wants from us is to approach him, is to, to give some effort and to walk to him. But what Solomon is saying here is that it's possible to approach him incorrectly. He doesn't just want us to approach him, period. He wants us to approach him correctly. So with that, we're, let's, uh, let's drop you into the sermon. God and I are on, we're on good terms. As long as I read my Bible here and there and I, I say a prayer here and there, God and I, we're good. Because what God wants from us, he wants some effort. He, wa- he wants me to approach him in some way, shape, or form. He wants me to, to take the initiative and to do something that shows that I, I want to have a relationship with him. So as long as I'm doing something, as long as I'm checking off some kind of box, as long as I'm approaching God in some way, then God and I are good. We, we, we have this good relationship because I'm checking off these boxes and I'm doing these things. And we think that all we need is just to approach God somehow. And that'll make God happy. But Solomon is pointing out here that it's possible to approach God poorly. <laughs> it's possible to approach God incorrectly. What God wants from us is not just to approach him. What God wants from us is to approach him in the right way. It's not just that he wants something from us. He wants some effort. He wants us to to put in some work and to say that we want a relationship with him. What he wants is for us to think about him the right way and to approach him the correct way. So it's possible, according to Solomon here at the beginning of verse 1, it's possible to approach God incorrectly, to have the wrong approach. So he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And then he outlines for us a little bit of what is a bad perspective, what is a bad approach to the Lord. Look with me, continuing on in verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. So Solomon, Solomon paints this picture of a guy who comes into the presence of God. He, he approaches God with his mouth wide open. Like he approaches God with a monologue. And he just starts talking, enters the presence of God. And, he, and, and this, uh, this is the picture. This is the image that Solomon is painting. This is a picture of someone who walks into the presence of God. Again, they're, they're in the Old Testament. So think of someone walking into the temple where, where the presence of God is like you're walking into a throne room. And he's walking into the room and saying, all right, God, I'm here. And let me tell you what I bring to the table. Right here, here, you're just walking in and saying, God, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is how I'm going to, to rock your world. This is how I'm going to help you out. Like, this is what I'm going to bring to the table. And it's someone who walks into the presence of God and just starts talking. What this is a picture of is this is a picture of someone approaching God with arrogance. W- with an abundant over self-confidence. <laughs> As if we're the ones that have the power and the relationship, as if God wants something from us, and so we walk in, and we just start telling him what we're going to do for him. Think about, maybe let's say you worked in a, in a corporation, you worked in the corporate world, and you got, uh, you got brought into the, the office of the CEO of this major corporation. Like you had a face-to-face meeting with the CEO. The CEO called you in, and you don't know what the meeting's about. You're not really sure why the CEO brought you in, but, but you're being called in for this face-to-face meeting with your boss's 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 boss. 
right? And so you go, you go into the, this meeting with the CEO, and you walk in, and you shake the CEO's hand, and then you immediately say, hey, I don't know what this meeting is about. Not sure why you called it. We'll get to that in a second. But let me just tell you, I was really disappointed with the quarter four results. Like, they came in a little low. Uh, we need to get our profit margin up. So let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to take the lead on this team, uh, on, this, uh, on this project, and that's going to help your bottom line. And I'm also going to take the lead on this initiative that's really going to drive our culture forward. Like, I think we're, I, I'm, I'm going to bring this to the table and help you guys out. Uh, that's probably good. And then walk out. That is the picture of arrogance. Right? That is the picture of, of overabundant self-confidence, walking into the, your boss's 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 boss and saying, and giving them a performance review unasked for and telling them what you bring to the table. Right? But that's the picture that Solomon is saying here. We wouldn't do that to our boss's 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 boss, but we do that to God at the creator of the universe, and we walk into his presence as if we're the ones that have the power, as if we're the ones that dictate how the relationship goes, as if we're the ones that decide how we get to approach God, and we walk in to his presence, and we give him a performance review and tell him what we're going to bring to the table. This is the picture of somebody who walks in uh, and prays before God and says, God, I'm going to go to church every day for a month, and we're going to be on good terms. God, I'm going to have a a, a regular time in the word, and I'm going to read the Bible, and that's going to make you happy. We're going to be on good terms. God, I'm going to regularly pray. And I might even say a public prayer. Like, people are, like, out loud. And and that'll make you really happy. And we start listing off, God, I'm going to give money to this church. I'm going to give money to this organization, to this uh, cause, and I'm going to do these things. And we start listing off these things. God, this is what I bring to the table. And this is what I'm going to do for you. We make these promises and we say these things and we approach God as if we're the ones that have the power. We're the ones that get to decide what's going to please God. We're the ones that get to decide how this relationship goes. And as long as I check these boxes, as long as I do these things, God's going to like me. God's going to be on my team. God's going to be on my side. He's going to have favor upon me. And so as long as I do these things, then God's going to be nice to me now and in the future. The problem is, that we don't hold the power in that relationship. This is the reason that that's a bad idea. Look at me in verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So Solomon says, don't approach God with arrogance Don't approach God with this overabundant self-confidence. Don't approach God in that way as if you have all the power in the relationship, as, as if you get to dictate how you approach him. Don't approach God with that way because he is in heaven and you are on earth. He is infinitely bigger and more superior to you. He is infinitely greater than you are. So if there's anybody that should be talking, if there's anybody that should be dictating how the relationship goes, it's not you. This is the the picture of God that Solomon outlines. He's he's this big, massive, almighty creator God, all-powerful creator God. Think about the fact that if you went to the furthest part of the observable universe, you went to the furthest point that we know of in the universe, uh, God still has dominion over that space. We're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence, spoke it 
into existence. We're talking about the, the God who we sing about as kids, that, that he has the whole world in his hands. So Solomon is saying this is a God who is far superior to you, who is far more powerful, far more wise, far more uh, 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 just bigger than you, and he is far removed from us. Like he is far away, has the whole control and power of everything in the universe. Like this is the picture of God, and yet we walk in with the feeling that we have the power in the relationship. That we get to tell God what's going to make him happy. That we get to check off the boxes. We get to, to do things for God, and that's going to make him happy. Solomon says that there is a grave power imbalance in this relationship, and you're acting as if you're the one with the power. You're not. And it's not like the relationship is 60-40 or 70-30 or 90-10. It's not even 99-1. and one. It's a hundred and zero. The infinite, almighty, all-powerful creator God and small, powerless, seemingly insignificant human beings. It is the God who created all things and spoke it all into existence and, and holds it all together, and it's us. We are not the ones with the, with the power in that relationship. We're not the ones that get to dictate how we approach him. We're not the ones that, that get to tell God what, we get to, what we're going to bring to the table for him. I, I, the way Solomon writes this, it's almost as if it's ridiculous to think that a God that is that big and that far and that superior to us would even want a relationship with us. Because think about it, that'd be like a human being wanting to have a significant, meaningful relationship with an ant, and that times a million, right? Like, like God is an infinite, almighty, all-powerful, creative being, and we are small, powerless, insignificant people. It's ridiculous to think that a being like that would even want a relationship with human beings at all. And it's doubly ridiculous to think that we would have the power in that relationship. That we're the ones bringing something to the table. That we're the ones that get to dictate how it goes and how we get to approach him and what's going to make him happy. That as long as we check off some boxes and do some things for him, we're going to be good. God is far above us. It's a view of God that is way bigger than most of us hold. God is way bigger than you think he is. And you and I are way smaller than we give ourselves credit for. The second truth that plays into this idea, and it's scary considering the first truth, but the second truth is that God is not to be messed with. God is far above us, and he is not to be messed with. Look with me in verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not pay, uh, excuse me, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. So Solomon is saying, if you're going to promise something to God, if you're going to tell this almighty, all-powerful creator God, if you're going to tell him that you're going to bring something to the table, you better deliver. Right? If you're going to make promises to him, you, you better follow through on those. If you're going to tell God that, 
that you're going to live this righteous life, that you're going to do all these things for him, that you're going to give this and give that and, and check off all these boxes. You better, you better follow through. There's this uh, imagery here that, y- again, think about uh, Old Testament times in the, in the, uh, in the nation of Israel. The imagery that he's using here, picture, picture someone walking into the temple and they hear all these people making promises of what they're going to give to God. And, then, and so you're sitting there in the temple and you say, God, I'm going to give you the fattest cow I have in my herd, like the best of the best. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to give it to you. And then a few weeks later, a priest comes knocking on your door and says, hey, I'm here for that cow. Like I'm here, I'm here for that thing that you promised. And you open the door and, and you're talking with the priest and you say, well, cow, I don't, that's got to be a mistake. Right, like it's got to be a type. I didn't say, "Honey, did you promise a cow?" We didn't promise a cow. Like I don't remember that at all. Maybe a chicken. Did you write it down wrong? I think it was a chicken. I can get that for you. And it, and that's the imagery when he says here in verse f- uh, in verse six, "Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it is a mistake." Like that's the imagery here that you're you're you make a big promise to God, and then they come and to to take it to come uh, for you to deliver it, and you say, "Well, oh no, 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 that was." It's not at all what I meant. That's not what I said. It's not what I promised. A- and the, the reason what Solomon is saying here is that that is utterly ridiculous because God sees. Almighty, all-powerful, all-powerful creator God, he knows. Like, he knows that, that it wasn't like some typo. He knows that you promised and didn't deliver. He knows when you've, when you've rebelled against him. He knows when you've sinned against him. He knows when you've You've rejected him when you've promised things to him and not followed through. And notice what Solomon says in in the second half of verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For where dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Solomon says you better deliver. You better follow through because God is not a God to be messed with. Because God is powerful enough, mighty enough, superior enough to us that if you don't follow through, he can take everything away. He can destroy everything that you've ever built, everything that you've been proud of, everything that that you claim superiority over, he can show in a moment that he has superiority over it all. God is not a God to be messed with. God is not a God to promise things to and not follow through. God is not a God to rebel against or to sin against. Solomon says at the end of verse 9 that God is a God to be feared. And that's the end result that he says here, we should fear God. And a lot of times we as pastors will explain away the word fear when it talks about the fear of God. Oh, it means respect or it means reverence. Not in this case. When Solomon says we should fear God, he means we should be afraid of God. (laughs) He is infinitely more powerful than us, infinitely mightier than us, infinitely greater than us, has infinite superiority over us. And if we rebel against him, that should make us afraid. Because he has the power to take it all away. Utterly wipe us out. He has the power to bring about destruction. God is not a God to be messed with. Uh, a discipleship group that I'm a part of. We just finished going through the book of Nahum together. And uh, there's a book called Nahum in the Bible. I don't know if most of you knew that. Um, but it's a, it's a minor prophet. 
only three chapters, but it's a it's essentially the sequel to Jonah, where Jonah, the prophet, comes and he he prophesies destruction to the city of Nineveh, and Nineveh repents and turns back turns to God, and so God relents of the destruction. But then uh, uh, later, uh, decades if not centuries later, uh, Nahum goes, and Assyria is still wicked. There's they've they've turned back to rebellion against God, and and so Nahum is the prophet goes to, to, uh, to the city of Nineveh, and he proclaims destruction. He says God is going to come, and he's going to destroy it. And it is a graphic book. Uh, the book of Nahum is a, if you want a book that shows, uh, like, the, the, the wrath of God, the book of Nahum is a wonderful example of that. It talks about him melting hills, and, the, the, and his, his wrath coming in as an overwhelming flood, making a complete end to his enemies. It is a, a, a powerful display of the, the leveling force of the wrath of God. And, and it's that imagery that the writer of Hebrews uses in the New Testament when he says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God is not a God to be messed with. Because the power imbalance is a hundred and zero. And if we make him angry, if we sin against him, if we rebel against him, that should make us afraid. Now, normally, as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, we have this under the sun perspective, and then we have this eternal perspective. So we kind of follow it up, and we, we uh, add more to the story. But in this case, this is an eternal perspective. Like, th- this is true. And this is eternally true about God. He is and always will be infinitely superior to us. He is and always will be a God who should not be messed with. And that is the reason why, why we need to fall on our face before God and worship. And that is the reason why so many people are going to spend forever separated from God in hell. Because God is infinitely superior to us. He is far from us. And he is a God that is not to be messed with. That is eternally true. And for us, we, our view of God has to include that. We have to have a view of God where he is infinitely bigger. And we have to have a view of God where we do not want to make him mad. So I'm not going to give an eternal perspective this morning, because that is eternally true. But I do want to give an additional perspective. I want to add a little more to the story and, and, and paint this out a little bit more because there's, there's this glorious truth that is revealed. By when, when if this is true, there's this glorious truth that's revealed. So I want to add a little more to the story. God is a God who is superior to us. He's a God who is far off from us, who is a, a, a way over and above us. But this is also true. God is a God who is near. I said before, the way that Solomon writes this is the idea that it is, it is ridiculous to believe that a God that is that far above us, that is that mighty, that is that powerful, it is ridiculous to believe that he would actually want a relationship with human beings. And yet it's true. That, that powerful, almighty creator God has decided he wants a relationship with you. And we see this throughout scripture that when God created the world, he created human beings to have a relationship with, with him. And the writer uh, uh, Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 45, God is talking through Isaiah, and he says, I'm not just a God who's far off. I'm not just a God who, who is distant. I'm a God who is near. And we see that playing out throughout Scripture. We see that at the very beginning with Adam and Eve in Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, where Adam and Eve, they sin against God, they rebel against him. There's this language where it says God came down to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and the way that it's written there in Genesis 3 makes it seem like this was a regular occurrence, that God was regularly coming down to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And, and we think of the almighty, all-powerful creator God. It's not like he can shrink himself down and, and put the fullness of his, his power there in, uh, in the garden. But what we see is God condescending, lowering himself in order to be seen and known and have a relationship with the people he created. He walks there in the garden with them. We see this again in, uh, with Abraham in the book of Genesis, where God calls out Abraham and he, he promises to give him descendants and make him into a mighty nation. And the reason he decides to make this nation is because he wants this nation to be his people and he's going to be their God. He wants a relationship with them. See this throughout the New Testament with Israel, that they, are, that, that they build the temple and the presence of God dwells in the temple in Jerusalem among the people of Israel. And they are the people of God. They are the people that, that he has a special relationship with. And so he has made for himself a people where he dwells among them. God is near. He wants to be with them. And we see this most clearly in the person of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, God decided to add humanity to his deity. The infinite, almighty, creator, powerful God, he decided to add humanity to his deity, and he came down as a human being. 100% man, 100% God. Adding humanity to his deity. If you want to talk about a God who's, who's near, a God who wants a relationship with you, it's a God who has condescended to the point where he has added humanity to his deity to know what we struggle with, to, to experience the struggles of human beings, to, to go through the sufferings that we suffer. That is the God that we serve, not just a God who's far off, but a God who's so near that he added humanity to his deity and knows exactly what we go through as people. God is a God who's near and wants a relationship with you. Which is the second truth, and then I want to add this additional perspective. God is not a God to be messed with, but God is also gracious. God is a God filled with love and mercy and grace. And again, we see that most clearly in the person of Jesus. The reason that God added humanity to his deity is that because he wanted to come and to die on a cross and to rise again from the grave so that we could be made right with him so that we could have a restored relationship with him. We, people who rebelled against him, who sinned against him, who made vows that we didn't pay on, who, who did not live up to his standard of perfection, who angered this holy, almighty God. We who rebelled against him and acted arrogantly and selfishly, God decided he wanted to save us. Jesus Christ died on a cross, gave up his life, and he rose again from the grave in order to make payment for our sin, in order to cover over our rebellion and to appease the wrath of God. To the, the language in the New Testament says that Jesus is a propitiation. That language means that he turned the wrath of God into the favor of God. The wrath that was upon us, the anger from God that was upon us, he turns that into pleasure and joy in us. He rose again from the grave, and he's now seated before the Father, interceding on our behalf that God is a gracious God who loves you and has made a way for you to have a relationship with him. It, it, when we 
think about a God who loves us, who has mercy with us, who, who's gracious to us. Too many times we, we look at this God and, 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 and we leave off the fact that he's also superior and mighty and not a God to be messed with. And we make him all about love and good feelings and good vibes and kindness. But he's not. God is both. And we can't approach him just however we want. We, we can't check off boxes and make him love us. We can't do some things for him and make him enjoy us. God needs to be approached the way that he wants to be approached. And the way that he's decided to restore our relationship with him is through faith in Jesus. The way to approach God is not by giving him your checklist and telling him what you bring to the table and telling him how you're going to please him and honor him with this thing or that thing. The way to approach God is with faith in Christ, saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've rebelled against you. I know that I deserve your wrath and I deserve your anger and I have trampled on the fact that you are a God that is not to be messed with, but I know that you are gracious enough and kind enough to save me through your son, Jesus. I put my faith and trust in him. That's how we approach the living God. That's how we approach the Lord, because that is how he, decided that he, how he decided he wanted to be approached. And praise the Lord that that's how he decided he wanted to be approached. Because the alternative is us giving him this checklist and saying, I want to measure up. But he is an infinite, almighty, all-powerful creator. How could we possibly measure up to his standard? He decided that the way that we can approach him and have a relationship with him is through faith in Jesus. So my prayer for every single one of us this morning is twofold. One, that you would know Christ. That you would have a relationship with the Lord. That if you do not know Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in him, that you would approach God in the way that he demands to be approached, and that's through faith in Christ. My second prayer for us is that we would recognize that God is way bigger than we give him credit for, which also goes to show that he's way more loving and gracious than we give him credit for. When we think of our sins as these things that are really not that big of a deal, it's because we have a bigger view of ourselves and a smaller view of God than we should. Our sins are a big deal. But that also shows just how great the love and grace of God is. This morning, my prayer for us is that we would have a view of God that is as big as God is, that our view of God would grow, that he's bigger, and we would recognize that he is bigger than we think he is, and we are smaller than we think we are, and that can allow us to swim in the love and grace of God through faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Christ, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. If you want to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I'd love for you to come up. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. If you don't want to come up here, that's fine. Just grab me after the service, but do not leave here without knowing the, fa- without, without knowing the love of God, without approaching the Lord through faith in him. Do not leave here without faith in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your abundant uh, incredible, astounding love for us. God, I know that we have rebelled against you, that we have, we have been way too high on ourselves and way too low on you, God, and you are bigger than we give you credit for, and you are not to be messed with, and we have rebelled against you, we have sinned against you, we have had the audacity and the arrogance to think that we could dictate a relationship with you, that we could make you happy by checking this box and by promising this thing and by doing this thing for you, but God, I pray that you would, you would blow that, that idea up in our minds, God, that you would, you would cast it far away from us and we would fall 
fall on our face before you and recognize just how big you are and just what a big problem our sin is. And God, I pray that that would also lead us to recognize just how gracious and kind you are, just how loving you are. And we would, we would do as Paul says in Ephesians 3 and begin to understand just how high and deep and wide your love is. And God, I pray that we would swim in that ocean of grace. I pray, Father, for anybody here who does not know you, I pray, Father, that they would, they would come to know you this morning, that they would approach you on your terms and put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus. We love you. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.